Well, it is so good to be with you again this morning. I'm so grateful for the opportunity um, not only to preach God's word, that's always an honor and a privilege, but to be here amongst all of you uh, means so much. So uh, it's good to see you again. Um, before we open God's word, uh, will you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we, we sing those words, uh, yet not I, but uh, through Christ in me, and we recognize the utter self-abasement, really, of not only that song, but the entirety of the Christian life, a recognition that we in ourselves are not adequate for um, not only uh, attaining salvation, but even as believers, as disciples of Christ, your Son, our inadequacy, Lord, in, in bringing glory to your name and, and being faithful to the call of discipleship, uh, apart, from, apart from your strength, apart from your spirit. Lord, we recognize the supernatural nature of the Christian life, that it is, it is you, God, indwelling us, fallen creatures, with your grace, with your power, uh, equipping us, strengthening us, um, to live lives that are holy, to live lives that will serve those around us and be a light for your name and will bring glory and honor to you, uh, to live lives that will uh, fulfill what we, were, what we were made to do, Lord, in this life. We recognize utterly that, that we are not able to do that in our own strength. Um, and yet, Lord, we so often try, uh, forgive us and supply us the grace necessary uh, to live such Christ-honoring lives. Father, that's our confession, that Christ be all um, and that Christ be magnified. Um, it's, it's our purpose, and yet we so often fall short, we so often get distracted with our own pursuit of glory, even when we're seeking to serve you. Lord, forgive us for that and, and help us to truly have our hearts, our affections, our minds, our wills fixated upon Christ, that all that we do, whether we eat or drink, uh, would be for his glory. Help us now, Lord. Uh, help me as the preacher. Even as I preach, I understand, Lord, that there's entangled within my own heart um, mixed motivations and distractions. Lord, help me to be, be fixated upon the glory of Christ as, as his word is preached. Help all of us as we hear it, uh, Lord, to uh, seek to, to receive it and uh, to, to allow it to affect our not only our minds and our understanding, but then our actions and our lives. Father, as we read of John the Baptist uh, desiring to see Christ magnified as his ministry decreased, may that be the call of our hearts as well. May we decrease and Christ be uplifted and praised and magnified. And Lord, for those here who don't know you, Lord, may this be the moment of their salvation. May this be the, the day that they come and see just how beautiful you are. We, we all want mercy. We all want companionship and friendship. And we all want acceptance, Lord. And, 
and in you, I pray, Lord, that, that those who don't know you would, would see you for who you are this morning, a gracious Savior, a, a kind friend, a faithful companion, and that they would long for the love and the joy and the peace that comes from knowing you. Magnify your son's name, we ask, in his name. Amen. We'll turn with me to John chapter 3, the Gospel of John chapter 3. And I want to read um, verses 22 to 30. Those will be the verses that we primarily focus on this morning. Uh, John chapter 3, beginning in verse uh, 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear, witness, bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. This is the word of the living God. I'm sure you've heard of the Wright brothers, Orville and Wilbur, the aviation pioneers. They invented, built, and successfully flew the world's first airplane. Uh, back at the start of the 20th century, this was all the rage, humanity attempting to fly, but no one had successfully done it until the Wright brothers. But I wonder if you've heard the name Samuel Pierpont Langley. In this race to flight, Langley, he was the people's choice. He had full government funding. He was, after all, an intellectual heavyweight. He was born in Boston, a Harvard grad. Did I say that like a Bostonian? Uh, he, he had the intellectual firepower, and he had friends in high places who had the deep, deep pockets. He was a professor of astronomy, and he even worked at the Smithsonian Institute. He knew all the right people. And so if anyone was going to succeed in this fight or this race to flight, uh, to be the first to fly, it would certainly be Samuel Pierpont Langley. Uh, the New York Times followed him everywhere, documenting and writing about every move he made. And yet, if I imagine correctly, most of you 
have never heard his name until I said it just a moment ago, and that's because of Orville and Wilbur, two brothers from Dayton, Ohio, not mighty Boston. They had no money, no connections, no college education, friends in low places. Uh, they, they weren't going anywhere. Um, in fact, neither they had an education from college nor anyone on their team helping them try to help humanity fly. But here's why we know their names. You see, the Wright brothers were motivated by a purpose, a belief. If they could defy gravity, if they could give humanity wings, they could change the course of humanity. If only people could fly like birds, free from gravity's oppression, the opportunities to advance humanity were endless. But Langley, he too was motivated by by a different purpose. He wanted the fame. He wanted the money. His motivation was not Pure as far as aviation is concerned. He was driven selfishly. He wanted the attention, the acclaim. He wanted the glory. And today, none of you know who he is. But you know who Orville and Wilbur are. Within two generations of the Wright brothers, we would see a man walk on the moon. And now, my wife and children and myself are able to fly across the country to see grandma and grandpa for Christmas. Third world countries are able to receive immediate, within hours, aid after natural disasters. The world has opened up. Why? Because of Orville and Wilbur. It matters what motivates us. And if that is true for aviation, how much more true for ministry? You know that we are all ministers of the gospel, those of us who are believers, don't you? It's not only the one who stands behind the pulpit. It's not only the one with a title, elder, or deacon who is a minister of the gospel. We remember Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 4 that that gifts are given to the church of pastors and teachers and elders and evangelists, but they have a purpose. They're gifts to the church in order to equip you, the, the saints, for the work of ministry. You do realize that every Christian Once you enter the fold of God's grace in his church, once you are a redeemed sinner, you enter the ranks of minister. You become a a mission or a a person with a mission and a message. You have the, the message of reconciliation, of salvation, and your mission is to proclaim it with your words, with your life. You are to be a minister advancing the cause of Christ. 
And what I want us to look at this morning is that our motivation in ministry matters. Why are we doing what we're doing? Why are we pursuing what we are pursuing? What is driving a preacher to study vigorously and to preach passionately? What is driving a Sunday school teacher to be so careful in what they teach the children? What is driving you as a member of this church to come not only to be served in this place, but to lay down your life and serve others? Friend, what is motivating you when you leave these four walls and spend the rest of the week out there in a world so desperate for a savior? So hopelessly lost, what is motivating you as a minister of the gospel? In John chapter 3 and these short verses we read, we will discover what a pure motivation for ministry is while simultaneously discovering what it's not. In John 3, we're given a behind-the-scenes look into the heart of John the Baptist, a name that, like Orville and Wilbur, we are talking about so many years later. And as we take a short glimpse into the life of John, we will, God willing, find our own hearts being examined, our own motives for ministry being tested. So, we pick up here in John chapter 3 and verse 22 to look at the motivation for ministry. Read again verse uh, 22 through 24. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. And John was also baptizing at Anin near Salim because water was plentiful and people were coming and being baptized. And verse 24 is interesting, for John had not yet been put in prison. Um, We see the start of verse 22, after this, Jesus, well, after what? Uh, He's just come out of one of his most famous conversations he's ever had that's recorded in scripture, the conversation with Nicodemus. Um, We've just come out of an episode of Nick at Night. Uh, Nicodemus approached Jesus in the night to ask him about uh, who he was. Um, And Nicodemus didn't know what he was getting himself into. Um, That conversation has turned into one of the most blessed conversations we could ever read about, where Jesus unveils the nature of true religion and faith. In it, we have those glorious words of John 3.16, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The reason Nicodemus had come to Jesus in the first place was because we read in uh, chapter two that so many were, were hearing about Jesus' signs and wonders. And so crowds of people were coming after Jesus. His fame was going out through the countryside and he was becoming very popular. We don't know all of the miracles he was doing, but uh, given that they were miracles, they were phenomenal. 
And if they were anything like the wedding at Cana miracle, people were enjoying them. And so Jesus, his, he, he's come on the scene, he's begun his public ministry, and people are flocking to him. Yet at the same time, John the Baptist's ministry was also in full swing. It was still at its height. Uh, we see there that uh, verse 22 tells us John was baptizing. You know, John had uh, amassed quite a following for himself as well, um, quite the charismatic man coming out of the wilderness, um, eating wild locusts and honey. Uh, he had been quite the spectacle. And he too, like Jesus, was gathering crowds of people coming to him. And John had a message, a very clear message, a message of repentance, repentance from sin, and a, a ritual of baptism that was a, 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 a cleansing ritual, a, a cleansing baptism upon repentance. You can see how popular his ministry was in verse 23. John was at Anin near Salim because there was a lot of water, because there was a lot of people coming after him. And so you see that, that this is at the height of John the Baptist's ministry. And then we're given in verse 24 a very interesting parenthesis. For John had not yet been put in prison. It's interesting to note that none of the other gospel writers share parts of Jesus' ministry until John had been imprisoned. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, none of them account for Jesus' ministry until after John was in prison. But here we're told of a little insight into Jesus' ministry before John's imprisoned. Matthew 3.12 kicks off Jesus' public ministry by saying, now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. That's the start of Jesus' public ministry in Matthew. Mark says, now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of John. That's the start of his ministry. Luke 3.20, we read that Herod the Tetrarch locked up John in prison, and then Jesus' ministry begins. But, but not here. Um, this little parenthesis is given, showing a, a glimpse into Jesus' ministry before John's in prison. Um, and it's not meaningless. It's not meaningless. It's giving us a valuable, as well as a very unique, look into the ministry of Jesus, as well as into the ministry of John. So what is that unique look? Well, look at verse 25. A discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. I told you that John's baptism was a purification ritual, a baptism of repentance. We don't know what this debate was about. We have very little information. In fact, this is it. So, so let's not get distracted by it. But notice what emerges from it in verse 26. Notice how John's disciples speak of Jesus and their concern with him. Listen to verse 26. And they came to John 
and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Did you notice what they called Jesus? He who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. Apparently, it was a bit too much to even say his name. And why would that be? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? Jesus is, is beginning to gain more traction than John. Jesus' rise to fame is eclipsing, maybe surpassing John's. And they don't like it. They, they were put off by this Jesus fellow. Why is he daring to accrue for himself more of an allegiant following than John? After all, John was here first. John was baptizing first. J John was preaching first. Look at the end of verse 26. It gives you a little glimpse into his disciples' hearts. Look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. How, how dare he? You're losing some of your followers, John. Yet that same indignation was non-existent within John. Verse 27. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Interesting. That's a, why, why does John bring that broad, generally accepted principle of, of God's sovereignty in, in giving? Uh, why does he bring that up here? Well, I believe it's because he's stating in the context of his ministry being, being pitted against the ministry of Jesus, the reality that his ministry was a God-given ministry. In other words, John's ministry was not something for him to grab or to give away. His ministry was given to him from God. It was a gift. It was in God's sovereign appointment, his to be had. It was not his choice to have that ministry. He, he did not choose himself before the foundation of the world for that ministry. While he was in his mother's womb, he did not ask for the Holy Spirit to be placed upon him. God gave that to him. So, so don't you see why John's bringing that up here? His disciples are in a bit of a, of a having a, a bit of a, a fit because this Jesus fellow over there is getting more followers, John. Aren't you worried about that? And John says, wait a second, God's sovereignty, God's purpose. He gave me this ministry. Okay, what does that matter? Well, it matters because for John to envy the ministry of another, a more popular prophet, a rabbi, or of Jesus himself, would be covetousness 
born out of bitterness against the very purposes of God. God gave him his ministry. God gave him his calling. And so by bringing in God's sovereign purpose here, John is essentially saying, look, my ministry was given to me from God. Am I to argue the place that I shall play within it? Shall I argue with God the prominence that I should gain? I think it's at this point that we should allow this text to pivot and turn on us. For John to have wished he were someone else, more powerful, more prominent, more popular, more recognized, would be for John to take issue with God himself and his providence. You see how that quickly turns on us. When we so easily grasp for someone else's position, when we think if only I could be recognized like that person's recognized, if only I could have such a place of prominence where where people would praise me the way they praise her, or look to me the way they look to him. Here I am serving as a minister in the church, but no one's noticed me. I haven't been celebrated I haven't been honored. Here here I am shining as a light in my workplace and yet no one seems to care or to know about my place of ministry. If only I could be seen, if only I could have more of a reputation. Don't you see how our hearts so quickly turn to be like the disciples of John? We would do well to take a lesson from John, a lesson he gave to his disciples. Hold on a second. I didn't ask for this ministry. God gave it to me. This is his providence in putting me where he's put me. And so if he wants to gain or or put me in a place that gains uh, popularity, so be it. And if he wants to take it all away, so be it. It's not mine to grab. It's not mine to give away. John immediately snuffs out the, the objection of his disciples with the reality that God has given him his ministry. And what exactly was that ministry that John had? Look at verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Uh, This is a reference back to chapter 1 when he was asked about his role. And he's very clear. I'm just a forerunner. I'm the voice crying out in the wilderness. I've come to point you to someone else. John's very clear about that. He's been clear about that from the start. We could go back to chapter 1 and and see these interactions that, that John was having with the other religious leaders, um, when they asked him in chapter 1, verse 19, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, are you then Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So, So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who've asked us 
about you. And what does he say in chapter 1, verse 23? I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So John had made very clear from the start of his ministry that he, he was not the focal point of his ministry. I am not the Christ. I'm simply making the way for the Christ. Now, we know about John that he was a very great man. Um, Jesus himself said of John that of among those born of women, there has arisen none greater than John the Baptist. Imagine Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, saying that of you. John was a great man. Why? Well, because he recognized his place. Lowly, unworthy, a mere sign pointing to the Savior. John was great precisely because he understood how how low he was. This was greatness epitomized by humility. Friends, this is humility in ministry. John's ministry was not designed to elevate John. His his ministry was not consumed with growing the size of his Riverside church. You know, first John or First Baptist, John the Baptist Church of Riverside could have been a decent name. It wasn't his aim to popularize himself and to have the biggest crowd. He didn't have his disciples, maybe they did this, you know, without his prompting, but I doubt he prompted them to go around and tick how many people were there on a Shabbat coming and getting baptized. That wasn't the purpose of his ministry. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, it can often be the purpose of ours. Serving selfishly. Haven't you found that in your heart? Being preoccupied with, if I do this, they'll think this. You you realize preachers are often tempted with that. Even as, as you, you labor in the study and you, you are so close to the Lord, you're reading his word and di- dissecting it and, and immersed in prayer, spending hours studying and preparing and thinking to, to minister the word of God to the people of God. And yet incessantly creeping at times into your mind is, oh, I think they'll maybe like this. Or if I give that illustration, they'll they'll like me more, or this will bring more people to the church, especially, I'm sure, in, a, in a, a rather young church where you see visitors coming on a Sunday and, and thinking, oh, perhaps it's because they especially like my presentation of truth. What a wrong-headed reality that as you stand to be a servant of, the, of God and his people, a servant of the word, you... you are seeking to draw the attention to yourself. It's not only preachers who wrestle with that, and we know that well, don't we? 
how quickly selfish motivation can creep into our hearts. Ready for a bit of conviction at this point? John the Baptist had one motivation for ministry. To introduce the Savior to sinners. Go back to John chapter 1. He had one motivation, friends. To introduce the Savior to hopelessly, helplessly, hell-bound sinners. Verse 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Friends, who takes away the sin of the world, who expiates, um, who removes. Let me tell you about a sacrificial ritual in theocratic Israel. In the Old Testament, In Leviticus chapter 6, you can read about sacrifices. And one of the sacrifices that the priests would do when the people sinned on a special day, they would bring a lamb, two lambs, um, to the altar. And the people who sinned and the priests would lay their hands on the lamb, these two little lambs symbolically transferring my sin onto this pure little creature. One of the lambs would be slaughtered and placed on the altar. Do you know what they would do with the second lamb? They would let it go into the wilderness. Friends, that wasn't freedom for the lamb, that was a death sentence. But the lamb would go into the wilderness, bearing the sins of the people into the wilderness where it had, friends, it had no chance of survival. A a lamb doesn't survive in a wilderness with hungry beasts. But but it was a, a vivid picture, a picture of what? This little innocent lamb will take my sin far, far away and pay the penalty for my sin out there. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. One motivation for John, introduce you and me Fallen sinners who, if that lamb doesn't come and that lamb doesn't go, I take the sin upon myself. Behold, there's a lamb for you. There's there's one to, to take your sin and to go into the horrible wilderness and to bear the consequences of that sin so that you don't have to. You get to stay in Israel. You get to stay in the confines of safety. Where the mountain lions and the, the bear and the, the wolves have no 
no access to you. But that lamb goes. Can you imagine that picture of that, that innocent little lamb buying its way into the dark wilderness? It would have gripped the minds. It was meant to. It's not a pretty sight. It was meant to be emotionally moving. And that's what Christ has done. Do you realize, sinner, that you have a Savior who has entered this world for nothing you have done positive, but only because of what you've done negative? He's entered this world and he's volunteered himself. The one against whom you've sinned has volunteered himself to take your sin away. And to bear the full brunt of God's justice because of it. I I often ask um, the students in the college ministry at at a point like this to, to think on some of the most horrible sins they've committed. Something you wouldn't tell another person about. Maybe the thing that often comes to your mind that, that breaks your heart. Maybe it was a thought you thought or a word you said or actions you've done that no one sitting next to you here would know about. And think of the shame and the sorrow. And then to think that Christ, the holy, gracious Savior, took that sin upon himself and paid the penalty for it. What a thought. What a savior. And he's offering himself to you. He says, come to me. You can know me. Are you weary? Are you heavy laden? Are you beaten down by your sin? Have you lived enough years of misery because of it? Are you sick of it? Have you woken up to the reality that your sin isn't going to satisfy you no matter how many times you do it? It's never going to satisfy you. Are you weary? Come to me. I'll remove it. I'll take that burden upon myself and I'll give you my burden. I'll give you my yoke and it's an easy one and it's a delightful one. And you can live with me and serve me and walk with me and I'll walk with you and I'll love you and I'll, I'll actually serve you. Isn't that an amazing concept? The God we were made to serve stoops down to this earth and washes our feet and serves us. What a savior. What a gracious, merciful savior. And John had one motivation in ministry. I want sinners to meet that Savior. I want sinners helplessly and hopelessly hellbound, gripped by their sin, entrenched in their sin, shackled by their sin. I want them to meet that lamb who will take their sin into the darkest depths of the wilderness and be ripped apart by wild animals because of that sin. I want sinners to meet this wonderful Savior. Behold, he's here. Remember the the Wright brothers? If they could defeat gravity, if they could give mankind wings, they could change the course of humanity. They could bring aid to countries in distress. But remember Langley? He wanted the fame. He wanted the glory. He wanted to be in the inner circle. It's interesting, the parallel, because um, the ministry, the measure of, of ministry success for John was different than that of his disciples. It seems his disciples were more Langley like, 
John, you're at the height of your fame and someone's taking that fame away. Their metrics were numbers, reputation, popularity, influence. John's metrics, one, introducing sinners to the Savior. Uh, the Wright brothers, I open with that, this sermon with that, because I think it's a pretty good illustration. I like illustrations. Illustrations act as evidence. Uh, like a prosecuting attorney will say, make his case and then say point of evidence one, point of evidence two. Um, it's, it's designed to prove the point you're making. So me as a preacher, I'm sitting here saying, I like that illustration because I think it proves the point about motivation, right? Uh, you know who's a better illustrator than me is John the author of this gospel, not John the Baptist, but John the Apostle, because in verse 29, he gives us an illustration, and it's a good one. Look at verse 29. Back to John 3, sorry. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Um, back in the day, a, a friend of the bridegroom was much like a best man, played a pivotal role at the wedding. Um, he probably did more than a best man does today. Frankly, a lot of best men are just useless um, and are like the, the worst man. You know, um, they forget the ring, they fumble over, they, they can't even, you know, they make you stay up way too late the night before and you're exhausted, you got bags under your eyes, your fiance is upset. It's not like it happened. So the best man really doesn't do too much today. But um, back in that day, he, he was carrying a lot of responsibility. Um, he had a lot of preparation to do. He would give a lot of encouragement to the groom um, leading up to this very big day. And actually, uh, the, the, the um, friend of the bridegroom... Um, had the biggest responsibility of all, he would actually bring the bride to the altar. He was in charge of getting the wife there, which is a big deal in marriage because without her, you don't have it. What a privilege, though. Enormous responsibility, but what a privilege to be the one responsible for bringing the bride to the groom. But his task ended when she was at the altar. No more responsibility. Thank you, friend. Now stand to the side, grin, and be happy. John standing there behind Jesus. As Jesus is introduced to John's disciples... And John is grinning, happy, utterly delighted that the union between Savior and sinner is taking place. He's done his job. That's him. Go and meet him. But could you think of a picture any more depraved than the friend of the groom? trying to steal his bride on his wedding day. Could you think of a more depraved picture 
than the one whose sole job was to bring the bride to the groom, flirting with her down the aisle, trying to gain her affection for himself. Again, this pivots onto us, you know. We do realize that the church is explicitly called the bride of Christ, don't we? Trying to gain her affection for yourself instead of Christ. John Calvin said of the Christian pastor that those who win the church over to themselves rather than to Christ faithlessly violate the marriage which they ought to honor. And so John, instructing his disciples, concludes in verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. My friends, may I ask you, what is your motivation for ministry? Is it to be a forerunner for Christ or a frontrunner? John shows us the pure motivation. He must increase, but I must decrease. So what does John do next? Well, he magnifies Jesus. If you read on through the end of the chapter, you discover the message of John's ministry. And guess what? It's all about Jesus. Notice how many times he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth. He, 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 he. John, John pointing to Christ. He must increase. Disciples, you don't get it? It's all about him. Jesus is above all. His glory is above all. He, he is the truth. He, he is God himself. He possesses the spirit. He has all authority. John is pointing everyone away from himself and to the Savior. So friends, what is driving you to do what you're doing? It's a very simple question, isn't it? But can you say as you serve in the church, as you serve as a Christian in the kingdom, that it's verse 30 driving you? Or is your life more reflective of John's disciples at this point? I suspect we're all wrestling with selfish ambition, pride, the fear of man, wanting to elevate ourselves. It creeps into all of our hearts. But thankfully, we have a Savior the Lamb of God, who gives eternal life to whoever believes, verse 36, whoever believes has eternal life. That even in spite of our arrogance, Christ still came for sinners. What a message. I'm grateful that John the Baptist was consumed with that message and not with a message that elevated himself. Aren't you grateful for that? And so several reminders as we close. First, remember, friends, that we serve to please God, not man. 
You serve as a minister of the gospel to please God, not man. To receive honor from God, not man. You serve not to hear from Pastor Chuck or from anyone else. Well done, good and faithful servant. Who do you want those words? Whose lips, from whose lips do you want those words to come? From God. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Remember that we serve to please God. Further, remember that genuine humility, genuine humility, not stated humility. You know what stated humility is, right? Um, the athlete after the game uh, boasting that he just wants to give all glory and praise to God and yet lives a life that contradicts it. You know stated humility. Oh, I, just, I just humbly want to ask you, just, just humbly want to ask you. And yet your actions defy that. No, no, no. Friends, remember that genuine humility results in a ministry that magnifies Jesus. Do you want to be great in the kingdom? Then take the place of a servant. Serve Jesus by introducing him to his bride. What a privilege. Um, Friends, remember who you are. You are minister of the glorious gospel. This is not about you. Introduce sinners to their savior. What a privilege you have, as my father often says, to be a trophy in the trophy case of God's glory or in the trophy case of God's grace. Here you are, a sinner, hellbound, snatched from the fire, by the loving hand of Christ. Now go and let others know of this Savior. This isn't about you, any part of it. It's all about introducing sinners to their Savior, that they might find eternal life. In that, Jesus Christ is glorified. And my friends, in that, you will find joy. Like the friend standing beside the groom, grinning from ear to ear. I got her there. Now they can get married. Let's pray. Father, you are so gracious. You are so kind to us. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. Um, We pray, Lord, that we would not live to magnify self, but that we would live to magnify your name and your glory. In the name of Christ, we ask.